Welcome to School Mental Health Works, a quick dip monthly podcast presenting dialogues on school mental health in Wisconsin. Our mission is to share the successes and challenges experienced by a range of partners in Wisconsin as communities continue to collaborate and show that school mental health works. This series is a product of the Coalition for Expanding School-Based Mental Health in Wisconsin, a statewide coalition with a mission to advance and support expanded, comprehensive, and integrated mental health services within the school setting through school, home, and community partnerships. I am Allison Forseth, an educator currently working as a manager of behavioral health initiatives at WAFCA, the Wisconsin Association for Family and Children's Agencies. I was a former Spanish teacher, and in my current role, I curate our continuing education program, facilitate communities of practice for mental health professionals, and oversee many of our school-based mental health initiatives. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. We are joined today by Dr. Armando Hernandez, a licensed psychologist and equity-centered leader with 20 years of experience. He specializes in culturally responsive practice, behavioral health consultation, and systems change. He currently holds a position as managing director of clinical programs at Trails, an organization that focuses on transforming youth mental health care delivery by equipping school staff with the training and resources they need to provide evidence-based and culturally responsive programming to their students. Armando has held positions in community mental health and healthcare, Madison Metropolitan School District, and was previously the chief diversity officer for Journey Mental Health Center. He was also previously a coalition board member. Thank you so much for joining us today, Armando. Thank you so much, Allison. I appreciate the opportunity. And we are going to talk today about diversity, equity, and inclusion in school-based mental health programming. Excellent. So I'm thinking maybe to get us started, um, we could dive right into the why. Why does it matter? Why is diversity, equity, and inclusion important in school-based mental health services? Yeah, this is a very um, important and I think fitting place to start when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, It's really, I think, anybody doing that work, um, as we know, in any organizational um, uh, initiative, the why is critical. That really is what energizes us, what uh, provides us a sense of grounding for this work, um, we also know that um, school-based mental health uh, being in that intersection between education and mental health and healthcare can be really hard. And adding a diversity and inclusion lens to that work uh, can really uh, move us into even harder territory. So being grounded in a why is really important. And for me, I think about three different um, answers to that question. And the first one is that for me, DEI is about assuring, really in a way guaranteeing, that we are effectively serving all of our students, that we are creating a system of care, that we are providing interventions, that we're providing strategies, that are welcoming, that are respectful, that are effective for every single student. And that includes students of color. It includes um, students that identify in lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, non-binary. And includes really any students that um, is 
um, diverse or historically marginalized on any dimension of cultural diversity, from either you know where they live to a dimension of disability, etc. Um, so really, it is about informing our programs and our systems of care and institutions towards that assurance of effectiveness. The second uh, dimension of why, it's really, it's about avoiding harm. We are, hopefully, our listeners are aware of our history of oppression, marginalization, disparities that exist, and that really put, again, historically marginalized um, groups um, at risk. So I think we have a responsibility we can call that ethical, we can call that professional, we could call that moral, responsibility to really avoid that harm. Uh, that is really grounded in our um, uh, awareness, again, of those historical and persistent disparities. And, um, and it's important to really assure that that um, isn't happening and that we're not intentionally or unintentionally playing a role in those uh, those disparities. Um, and then finally, I think that we all understand that um, when our needs are met, uh, we function better as a society. We function, we have better schools. Um, we have um, better teams, better programs. And one of, I think, the fundamental needs that we have I think as humans, um, is to belong. Um, uh, when we belong, when we feel a sense of connection to the team, to the school, to the community that we are part of, um, that sense of affirmation essentially helps us uh, work better. Um, equally, that is also true for the students and the young people that we are serving. When we are able to have school communities where they belong, where they feel a deep sense of connection, then that really can deliver the best educational experience. And in the same way, when that sense of belonging is integrated into our school mental health initiative, um, it really increases the likelihood of success. Yeah, that's so wonderful. Thanks for breaking it down in those three points. You talked a little bit about belonging, and I'm wondering if there's a way that you would describe or define that for folks just a little bit more um, concretely? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, all of us have a, a sort of um, uh, hopefully a foundational sense of what belonging is. And sometimes we can talk about belonging as a um, psychological sense of connection. Um, I also really like the very basic definition of belonging as just being part of a caring community. Um, I also resonate with uh, John Powell's definition of belonging. John Powell is um, inspirational scholar and really leader of the Othering and Belonging Institute, and he defines uh, belonging this way. Belonging means more than just being seen. Belonging entails having a meaningful voice and the opportunity to participate in the design of social and cultural structures. Belonging means having the right to contribute and make demands on society and political institutions. I think there's so much to that definition from where it begins that obviously being seen, being recognized is a core element of belonging, 
But this deeper understanding of it goes beyond. It really centers in the notion of having a voice and really having a sense of participation. I mean, as we talk about initiatives in this area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we know that one of the most powerful initiatives is really having have those participants of our services, which are young people, which are our families, particularly those um, uh, participants and family that are historically placed at the margins, to having have that sense of voice, having been able to be participants in the programs that they're a part of. Um, I think for me as a mental health provider, I have often noticed how mental health often is something that happens to people. Um, It's, you know, the idea of a treatment, right? The idea of a passive patient that just receives it. And I think that DEI and culturally responsive practice really pushes us to really make that interaction a much more collaborative one. And Beyond the voice, um, John Powell here adds the notion of having a right to contribute and really even make demands that that active participation, that advocacy is really integrated in this concept that, uh, again, begins with a sense of, of just being seen to really full participation. I really love that distinction you made to bring in that mental health is not just a thing that people receive or that they need when there's a problem, that there's a responsibility to nurture and cultivate mental wellness that expands beyond um, people who have like a diagnosed problem, for example. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I think it's the really powerful contribution of school-based mental health, where it really transform how we think about mental health delivery, uh, because it integrates by design concept of education, which are really often more participatory, more collaborative. And we understand, we understand that good schools are schools where uh, the community is involved, the community is seen and that we are responsive to it. And, um, and I really always see, I, I, I just um, always energized by seeing mental health programs that are in that space of integration and that are responsive to other initiatives, whether it is restorative justice or whether it is um, initiatives that, again, bring in the, the community in a very active way. Yeah, before we get too deep into this, I'm wondering if we can take a quick pause to think about some terms that we think folks might need to know moving into this episode as we continue. Um, So if there were three things that you wanted to define for folks, what are those three things that they need to know? Absolutely. So we know that within DEI, there is a vast um, series of terms and concepts that we could talk about. Um, It is not uncommon to have DEI initiatives begin with that common language, with those sets of principles, even starting with concepts like race and gender and culture, uh, which can be very nuanced uh, in our understanding. For the purpose of our conversation, I'd like to say a few things about DEI, culturally responsive practice, and then one less common term that I really resonate with, which is equity-centered practice. And of course, all of these really um, overlap with each other. Um, 
I think that there is my assumption with these terms that even though for some of us, uh, we might be familiar or we have heard of them, I never make the assumption that we're talking about the same thing. So when somebody says DEI, my assumption is that we may have very different understandings of what that means. Um, for me, DEI is that larger organizational framework, those sets of guiding principles that essentially provide a vehicle for the things that we mentioned earlier, right? Uh, that provide a vehicle for assuring effective services, a vehicle for avoiding harm, particularly on the basis of race, gender, and culture. And it also provide a vehicle for belonging. Um, the culturally responsive practice or equity center practice is really more of our own practice, how we are embodying those sets of principles in a day-to-day -day basis. Um, technically, regardless of whether my agency or district or work setting has a DEI initiative, I can always practice in a way that can be culturally responsive and equity centered. Now, if I don't have a context that values DEI, then it's going to be really hard to do. And many of us can resonate with that experience. It's going to be an uphill battle. So the ideal context always is that our work setting or community setting embraces a larger DEI framework that then nurtures the way that I practice uh, day in and day out. So I'll start, I'll go by fairly quickly through these because there will be a lot here, uh, but then we can go back and maybe um, elaborate a little bit. So a lot of different definitions on DEI. Um, so diversity, equity, and inclusion. Personally, for me, how I conceptualize these three powerful guiding uh, principles. For me, DEI, I mean, diversity is about mindset, Equity is about outcomes and inclusion is about relationships. Um, so diversity is really for me, it's about a mindset that understands and sees any social and cultural differences as a strength, as something positive, as something that builds opportunity, creativity, and can enrich a team, a school, a community so that when I enter into the into any space and I see diversity, whether it is racial diversity or gender diversity or cognitive diversity, etc., that any of that, when I see that, when I notice that, that that's going to make the environment richer and f with more opportunity. So for diversity, essentially the strategy in that space is for us to engage in meaningful professional development opportunities that can nurture that strength based mindset around diversity. Now, many times I think the traditional uh, definition of diversity has to do with demographic diversity and numbers, which is definitely related. I tend to see that more as an outcome in the area of equity. I think that diversity is something that it's more malleable, something that we can have more of an influence on, which is again, that mindset work that we can engage on. 
equity, as I mentioned, is based and grounded on outcomes. Uh, many of us have probably have seen the very different understandings of the difference between equity and equality, where equality essentially relates to sameness and treating everybody the same. And equity really is about being responsive to the needs of the people that we're seeing. So imagine, for example, if I stepped into a shoe store and they say, well, listen, uh, a sandal is the most versatile shoe and uh, a nine is the average shoe size uh, of the population. Here you go. And I may say, hey, I actually am a size 10 and I didn't want a sandal. I wanted a tennis shoe, right? So in the most basic of terms, right, um, equity, it's about being responsive to what is being presented, but also then measuring those outcomes to then say, where are we meeting the needs of the population that we are serving? For many of us in the healthcare setting and mental health, that's really an integrated component. Individualized um, services and treatment, I think is a concept that we are used to. However, to individualize it at the group level is something that is still an area of opportunity. It isn't only individualizing at the individual level, is also understanding that if a young person is black or is Latine or is non-binary or is from a particular religious or spiritual background in a particular rural or urban setting, that those type of social locations are going to come with some implications. That we're going to, we want to be curious about adapting what we are doing um, uh, depending on not only individual factors, but also social cultural factors, especially race, gender, and culture um, in, a, in a setting. So the strategy around equity really becomes systems evaluation. We really want to be able to establish what are our desired outcomes and then really measuring those outcomes and disaggregating them to um, have a clear understanding of who are whose needs are we meeting and whose needs are we not. Um, and of course, the implication then is, is that we are modifying our system to uh, to be responsive to those differences. The next um, the next element is um, inclusion, which for me it's about centering relationships. Um, I think actually inclusion and relationship is the most important one. I think that um, diversity and mindset it's very individual, um, but that is really providing the the context for us to be able to engage in um, nurturing and caring relationships. I think equity measures in some ways those relationships. So we know that there are many systems of care that become very technical and that really lose the centrality that this is about establishing caring relationships um, about, again, big connection here to what we were talking about belonging. Right. So uh, for me, I often see belonging as that really development or strong connection to inclusion or strategy that center relationships. Yeah, I really like kind of breakdown of the DEI. Like, I feel like we it rolls off the tongue so easily that it's become common language to say DEI without really breaking down that each one of those letters is a step unto itself, that we are shifting our mindset to see difference as a strength, 
We are working actively to see the impacts of our services and if they're actually meeting the needs of people. And then we're fostering relationships on a daily, minutely, hourly, <laughs> hourly basis um, to ensure that that's kind of moving along. So yeah, thank you so much for breaking that down. I think you also wanted to speak a little bit to culturally responsive practice. Do you want to move to that one next? That's right. Yeah, and I'll and I'll talk about them both both in combination because I think they're they're very related. You know, culturally responsive practice it's definitely the more common term, which is critically important. Um, essentially, if we take the example of a mental health provider embedded into a school, um, when that practitioner works through a culturally responsive lens, they are really attending to being mindful of integrating the social cultural dimension of the students and communities that they are working with. And there's, of course, a number of different ways to going about that. Um, And part of that includes being explicit about race, gender, culture, and other dimensions of diversity that are really relevant to that situation. Um, Of course, it could be a very nuanced conversation around how do we open the door to those conversations, how explicit are we, how implicit, but at the core is the understanding that every interaction is a multicultural or a social cultural interaction, that those dynamics are always really at play. Um, and it's a matter of, it's a very consequential matter to really be mindful of when I should be particularly attentive to that dimension. Um, another example is language needs uh, to really be mindful of, uh, of again, the linguistic needs, both of primary language spoken at home to also that moves us into uh, health literacy and also other communications issues that we want to be mindful of the importance of that element um, in some systems that becomes very concretely having intentional initiatives to have bilingual providers or at least bilingual providers involved when it comes to connecting to the family um, to the family um, system. So again, being responsive, I think it's, uh, it's really critical. Um, equity center practice for me is a extension that moves us into not only being responsive, but also assuring that I am being equitable and fair in my interactions with every, again, colleague, young person and family that that I um, uh, interact with. It goes back to our original, um, original principle or how do I assure that I am serving all students well and effectively? Um, and this really involves both a commitment to our own inner work and attending to the interpersonal um uh, relationship uh, dimension in all of our relationships and services that um, that we offer. Of course, a lot that we can say in this space, but that inner work involves me being aware of my own um, cultural identity, 
to do my own bias work and to nurture those equity-centered mindsets like how we have discussed. And that relational dimension involves having a sense of empathy, disrupting bias or discrimination wherever I see it, and really sharing power in the service of voice and opportunity as we have also uh, discussed before. So a lot there that if we have more time, we can definitely dive into. Yeah, hopefully that gives folks a good foundation to kind of move into the how of all of this. So we talked a little bit about our why, we talked a little bit about our what, these kind of foundational building blocks that we're going to work with. Um, And as we move into how, like really how can schools and perhaps individual mental health providers as well prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in school-based mental health services. And I'll just quickly note that in our show notes, we'll have some resources, including the National Center for School Mental Health's DEIA resources. Um, So for folks interested in learning more, we'll have a little bit more there too. Um, But yeah, getting started with the how. How How do we do it? That's right. So I will I will uh, revisit and ground us in in the particular understanding of framework of DEI. So part of the how is three strategies that are um, that are really are connected. It's first professional development, um, having a very intentional strategy for nurturing a culturally responsive and equity centered. Uh, mindset in our practitioners, administrations, and really any participant in our school mental health program. Second, we want to have an outcome component where we have identifiable, quote, universal outcomes to the services that we offer. And then ideally have the capacity to disaggregate those outcomes based on the particular demographic or cultural dimensions that we can um, understand that might make a difference. Certainly race, gender um, are great places to start and there could be other dimensions, language needs, zip code, et cetera, and other other dimensions as, um, as well. And then the third strategy, which I didn't highlight earlier around inclusion, really becomes having a community building strategy. So how are you creating community? How are you nurturing a sense of voice in all the participants of your system, right? And we know that it's it's multi-layered. How are you building a sense of community among your, um, your providers and your school staff? How are you building a sense of community before between those two systems to make the system collaboratively and integrated? And also, how do you nurture a sense of community between mental health and school providers and the community um, itself? So answering those three questions and being very explicit becomes a really a powerful place to start. So in very, um, uh, very specifically, um, the question that I start is when we are, again, implementing um, school mental health uh, collaborative, usually there is a contract, there's a memorandum of agreement or understanding that really lays out the parameters on our collaboration. Uh, most of the time, DEI is really uh, limited to literally either those three words or even culturally responsive, where there's a commitment that we will offer culturally responsive services. Now, 
That's important, right? I definitely rather have those two words in there other than not. What I think frequently is missed is a more of a of um of an explanation of what is what is meant by that. What do we mean when we say culturally responsive services? Now, I think in many um, in many spaces, uh, articulating that can really be a big task. So even if the initial commitment is to explore and to delineate a framework that can really be clear on what is culturally responsive services, what can that look like, then um, that's really important. If that doesn't exit up front, then at least being committed to having an intentional space where that can happen. Um, I think a frequent um, observation, as we know, we frequently have two big contrasting cultures, right? Whether it's the education uh, systems, um, schools that often come with their own specific culture, and then whether we call it healthcare or whether we call it mental health. And again, there isn't even consensus on each one of those settings as to what DEI or what a culturally responsive system of care is. So even more reason why we need to have intentional conversation and being being uh, being transparent and then being intentional about what is the process? What is the space very concretely as to where we're going to revisit these goals and further that conversation? And this is not rocket science, right? Whether it's a DEI work group, a DEI committee that has representation from all the, the different partners, or whether it is your your uh, coordinating space that very intentionally um, creates space for a DEI conversations at a particular cadence. Um, for me personally, I think it's really hard for something as complicated as DEI. If you're not talking about it at least a couple times a month, I think it's just going to be really hard, really hard to move that forward because it really does take a lot of work to share that common language, to talk about our informal principles and then um, and then go from there. Yeah, I think it's really great to point out that that initial conversation between the school and the community based partner um, is often one of excitement to say like, wow, we're going to work together. This is so great. Sign the contract. But really to take the time to say, you know, in this MOU, it says culturally responsive practice. Can we have a conversation about what that looks like? And if the individual providers that we're going to be working with really have an understanding of that um, to ground into, it's not just about drafting language that sounds good about this, um, but really like it's it's work in action. It's not just work written down, um, that it's a continual evolving thing between the, the partners and everyone involved, really. Exactly, exactly. So as we kind of move forward, um, I know you mentioned a little bit about that intentionality and, and the importance of kind of how often it's revisited as well. But if a, if a school is kind of thinking about how to get started with this, what would you recommend in terms of staffing or structure or frequency um, to make sure that this is work in action and not just work on paper? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think that um, the place to start is to really answer the question, where are we being intentional about articulating and applying our DEI strategy? What is the space where that is happening? 
And often if the space isn't there or there isn't a natural space, the place to really start is who is really the champion for this particular initiative? Um, often I know in, in some settings where I've been in, I've looked around for those champions and what I find is a mirror. <laughs> is I have to be the one that really uh, moves forward. We know that in most organizations, um, being a champion for DEI is volunteer. I think that's something that we need to change. I think we need to move that volunteering into being part of a person's job description and being intentional about how much time should that person allocate into DEI work. And that becomes a really interesting conversation, right? Um, I know that many of the listeners right now probably may potentially feel somewhat um, isolated in their DEI initiative. I know that that's still you know, very common. So having that conversation between you and your manager and your leader to say, you know, I want to champion this and I want to be intentional around how much support do I have to allocate particular sets of time. So is it two hours a week, right? Is it 10%? Is it, and then going from there, right? Having a conversation. And then this work has to be relational. It has to really reflect the principles that we are espousing. So very quickly moving from, I want to move this forward to, I need a small group to create a space to have this conversation. Now, again, many spaces have a DI space that only meet once a month for a couple of hours. I'm unfortunately not very optimistic that that really is a, an adequate allocation for this work to really move it forward. Um, we know that one of the barriers of this work is that by design, the barriers become performative or it just becomes a check. Right. I've been part of some DEI committees that at the end of the day, I actually had the realization this is creating more harm than good because it's not really having any real influence. It doesn't have really an impact and it's just serving the cause of we're doing something. So we really need to move DEI into an authentic um, initiative that has that is positioned to have influence because, you know, as we described today, it is it is an up, uphill battle. So again, two core places to start is who are those champions? Reach out to them. Understand that being courageous and maybe a little defiant sometimes it's part of the work to really create the momentum to move forward. Yeah, so we've definitely touched a little bit already on some of the barriers to moving forward and progressing with DEI work in school-based mental health. Um, so, for example, we've touched a little bit on the complexity of relationships between schools and community partners or agencies and individual providers even that um, everyone's going to have a different understanding of what is being talked about. And additionally, you talked a little bit about resource allocation. You know, uh, school staff are often overstretched already. And if they get a little 10% DEI added onto their work <laughs> label, it's not always enough to really prioritize it in terms of the whole school. Um, what other barriers or challenges do you see and, and how can we move past those? 
That's right. Yeah, I'll mention two additional ones. I often find myself in DI spaces, quote, using my mindfulness skills, right? Because I think it's important to acknowledge the reality of resistance, that um, this is hard work. And by the way, resistance isn't something that happens to other people. It happens in me as well, right? So uh, so I have to do my inner work. Um, I identify as a cis gender man. So I have plenty of privileges in that lens that I constantly need to be aware of and really nurture a sense of curiosity and um, and humility in that space. Um, so acknowledging that resistance and really navigating both riding the waves and then going underneath them, all the strategies becomes really important. The second piece that is often a barrier is recognizing the emotional labor that this work um, involves. It is not surprising that often the I initiative falls on the hearts and mind of people of color, on LGBTQ plus folks who are already at the margins and are already are experiencing marginalization. And then on top of that, there really are often digging deep to promote initiatives that really invite resistance. So that really is a call for both allies and co-conspirators to really see that emotional labor, to recognize it um, organizationally in a very concrete way, to, as you said, allocate time for this work so it can can move forward. Yeah, identifying the champion and then not putting too much on that champion's shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for speaking to some of those barriers. And as we kind of think about winding down this episode and we think about the relational daily work of DEI and school-based mental health environments, what what would you like to leave us with? What's on your mind? Yeah, thanks, Allison. I really uh, um, appreciate the space. Um, I think for me, one big question that often um, comes up is the notion of hope. We know that we are living through very difficult times right now. Um, And there's frequently a tendency to really end these type of conversations after we've covered the ground we have covered in a really hopeful and optimistic sort of note. Um, If I'm being completely honest in this moment, I am not hopeful in the sense that I see a lot of resistance. We know how DEI, um, even social emotional learning, and so many initiatives that are grounded in just respect and inclusion and welcoming have a lot of pushback, have a lot of resistance. And typically our systems really do not truly incentivize us to do this work. Now, just because I'm not hopeful, it doesn't mean that I'm not engaged. Actually, if me acknowledging the fact that it's not looking good, for me, it further energizes me around the importance and the urgency of this work. That if you, listener, right now, if you don't pivot into a more courageous, maybe even defiant role, in relation to disrupting the bias, the disparities, the small and big ass acts of dehumanization that happen day in and day out to so many of our students, then nothing will change. 
that there is really a need for that engagement. Um, I really think that there are so many different paths um, for this, but most importantly is just to create a space, to create a space for authentic dialogue and authentic um, connection to, again, touch on some of the things that we have talked today in the service of all of our students. Yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge the kind of axis of hopefulness and hopelessness and that really on both ends, it's going to drive us into action. There is action here that needs to be taken. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to speak to before we wind down? No, other than I really appreciate the space. And I know that in the show notes, we'll share some some resources that could be um, some some great uh, places of connection. Um, there's so much out there. Um, you know, you'll see a phenomenal book on DEI called DEI Deconstructed by Lily Zhang, along with Othering and Belonging Institute. And then um, a great book called Design for Belonging by Susie Weiss. Um, so again, Lots of work out there, along with, of course, National Equity Project, who is probably just has the best work in the space of um, equity center practice in, um, in educational systems. All right. Thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your insights, Armando. Thank you so much, Allison. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Until next time, keep working at School Mental Health because school mental health works. If you're looking forward to future episodes, make sure to subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a rating so that others invested in better mental health for Wisconsin students can find us. You can learn more by checking out today's show notes, as well as by visiting us on schoolmentalhealthwisconsin.org. Thanks so much, everyone.